I don't know if you know, Stretton has a cricket club, and coincidentally, I found myself taking an interest in their game against Ryland's first 11 in a cup game. I said coincidentally on purpose there, because of the main theme of this podcast. Hello and welcome to this Radio Stockton podcast. I reckon if you asked virtually anyone within the Warrington area to tell you about the town's war history, most of those people would have stories and anecdotes to tell about Burton Wood. And justifiably so, I suppose, because RAF Burton Wood, a couple of miles to the northwest of Warrington, played a pivotal role in Warrington's wartime history. Now, that all said, seeing as it's becoming increasingly apparent to me how ignorant I am to events and places about an area I've known all my life, I thought I'd better do some digging and find out more. Embarrassingly, before I started digging, what I knew about Warrington's wartime past could be written on the side of a stamp and addressed to Lilliput. So, I thought I'd better cure my ignorance and learn more about Warrington's wartime past. I'm not saying I was totally 100% ignorant about Warrington's wartime past. I was aware of Burton Wood's existence. Certainly, one summer, when I was around about 14, and I had a paper round around there. But that's as far as it went. I didn't really know anything about it, other than its existence. Or, to be more specific, and by association, I knew nothing of Warrington's history, in terms of its role during the war. cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. As was normal, church bells rang across the land as World War II began on a relatively warm Sunday at the start of September in 1939, though related conflicts began earlier. The Empire of Japan was already at war and had been for a couple of years with the Republic of China. Across Britain, Met Office weather records show the average temperature on that September Sunday in 1939 was around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, still relatively warm after the sustained higher temperatures of the July and August harvesting months, drowsily drawing summer to a close. Nevertheless, despite the relatively high early September temperature, the start of a Second World War would have physically and metaphorically created a chill. Even before the war started and Burton Wood became operationally important, 
The town played a major role in the United Kingdom's war preparation. Nearly six months before war started, around where Padgate College is now, on Insall Road and Fernhead Lane, the buildings existed as Padgate Camp and opened as a national training centre for RAF recruits. Those same RAF recruits that would later play such an important part of safeguarding the skies above Britain. The number three RAF depot at Padgate opened in April 1939 and provided basic training to raw recruits, for, as its name indicates, to the Royal Air Force. It became such an important place. By 1943, the weekly intake of raw recruits was 1,500. Every week, week in, week out, 1,500 raw recruits. One such recruit was Bruce Forsyth. As I sit and watch the cricket between Stretton and Rylands, I wonder if those raw recruits had any idea that six months later Britain would be at war. Do ordinary people see the signs of war in advance? World wars don't happen overnight. They can take months, maybe years. After watching today's cricket, I did some research and I found that the 1939 cricket season was the last, of course, before World War II started. And it wasn't until 1946 that first-class cricket could resume in England on a normal basis. The Wisden's Cricketer's Almanac reviewed the 1939 season as like peeping through the wrong end of a telescope at a very small but happy world. The 1939 season was almost over when war was declared on Sunday the 3rd of September 1939 which was, incidentally, the one and only season in which cricket adopted the eight-ball over. If you are from the Padgate area, where the RAF training camp was situated, you'll be aware of all the different roads around there. Vulcan Close, Valiant Close, Harrier Road, Viscount Road, etc etc. Not far from this RAF training centre was Risley Ordnance Factory, where explosive shells were filled, assembled and shipped out to keep the war machine moving. Like every sport, there is a combative competitiveness about cricket. On the field of play, it feels like war. Looking back to myself as a 13-year-old boy running a summer paper round around Burtonwood, I knew little and cared less about the place. And to make it worse, with the arrogance of youth, old folk that banged on about the war bored me. Old folk to my 13-year-old self were odd. I didn't understand them. I don't suppose I do now, to be honest. And I'm one of them. It never occurred to me that those old folk were young once, and life and war had taken its toll on them. Recently I spoke about this with a writer friend, Mike Jackson, in his secluded garden writing office. 
He told me how he wrote a short story about one such old person. Here's Mike explaining how the story came about. As a writer, I'm always looking for fresh ideas for stories. Normally, I take myself off to a local coffee shop and hope that inspiration will hit somewhere between the first and second latte. Recently, though, I wanted to change, so decided to take myself off to Walton Gardens. I picked up the canal path by Red Lane Bridge and headed off on the short walk along the towpath. It never fails to amaze me just how much the pace of life slows down on the canal towpath. Anyone you meet has a friendly smile and a cheerful hello. And with a top speed of four miles an hour, any of the boats going past do so at such a leisurely pace that you have plenty of time to pass the time of day with the crew. As you get closer to Walton Gardens, the towpath takes on a more mysterious feel as the trees on both sides overhang the water and it becomes quite dark. Maybe today's story is going to involve some dark tale of mystery and intrigue on board a narrowboat. Then I reach the flight of wooden steps that take me up to the entrance to Walton Gardens. Today I'm heading up towards the hall, away from the crowds. Behind the hall there are a series of interlinking gardens which few people seem to visit. An ideal place to sit and write. I find myself a secluded park bench surrounded on all sides by well-tended flower beds. It was while I was sitting there notebook open, pen in hand, enjoying the peace and quiet, that I noticed him. An elderly man, with a long coat, collar drawn up round his neck, slowly wandering through the gardens on his own. As I watched him, I got the distinct impression that he was waiting for someone, as he kept looking around and then peering down at his watch. At the same time, he seemed somewhat preoccupied, almost lost. Five minutes later, and he'd passed out of sight, but the idea for a story has started to come together in my head. That was my writer friend, Mike Jackson there, explaining from his South Warrington Garden in Appleton how he takes inspiration from walking towards and around Walton Gardens. We'll listen to the resulting short story later. Let's move back again to the north of Warrington now. I've spoken about Number 3 Depot Padgate, where people were trained to be part of the RAF, and I've briefly spoken about Burton Wood. Just for the moment, I want to move back to central Warrington. Although not there now, two large factories that dominated Warrington's industry for decades were Rylands and Greenings. You'll now know why the cricket match between Stretton and Rylands is pertinent to this podcast. During the war, Rylands and Greenings became targets for air raids because they produced springs for gun mechanisms, tank suspensions, the framework for Morrison shelters and wire mesh for gas masks. Across town by Banky Station, Crossfields not only produced soap, they also produced glycerine for explosives. I've already confessed to my youthful ignorance about the base at Burton Wood. I'd assumed Burton Wood existed purely as a facility for the Americans when they joined the war. However, it originally opened on New Year's Day in 1940 and was initially used as a servicing and storage centre for the modification of British aircraft. It was only transferred to American control and running 
on the 11th of June 1942, three years after the war had started and three years before it would finish. That said, it wasn't totally American-controlled. An RAF presence, albeit small, did continue until late 1943 in October, the 21st of October. Burton Wood was, by far, the largest European airbase used during World War II. As the war drew to a close, 18,000 servicemen and women were stationed there. During its wartime operation under American control, US stars such as Glenn Miller and Bing Crosby visited to entertain the troops. The comedian Bob Hope visited three years after the war, and the smoky crooner Nat King Cole in 1953. In fact, somewhat poignantly, after Glenn Miller had visited, he flew on to Bedford and then on to Paris. As we know, unfortunately, he didn't make Paris. His plane came down in the English Channel. It's often suggested that Burton Wood was strategically chosen as the main US airbase because it was out of range of Luftwaffe bombers. This is actually a myth. Several bombing raids were made on Burton Wood. Nevertheless, Warrington and its surrounding areas escaped a serious blitz, even though the town produced so much for the war effort via Greenings and Rylands, and not forgetting crossfields. Post-war discovered German aerial photographs showed that the Manchester Ship Canal was a target, along with Rylands and Greenings. However, it seems Warrington escaped, though not totally, because Liverpool and Manchester were regarded as more important targets. As I say, Warrington didn't escape totally. In September 1940, exactly a year after the war started, Howley was bombed. In fact, Warrington was subjected to some of the fiercest air raids of the war. One bomb fell opposite Rylands in Church Street, where Sainsbury's is now. The raid lasted around 10 hours, and three people were killed just yards from the safety of an air raid shelter. The bomb landed on a house. God knows how, but luckily the occupants survived. Perhaps the worst atrocity occurred on the 14th of September 1940, when Thamesboard Mills Recreation Ground was bombed as a garden fate was occurring. The bombs came without warning. There were no air raid sirens. A lone German bomber swooped down and released two bombs. Two families were killed and other families were seriously injured. It was reported on German radio later that the aluminium works at Banquee, a mile or so away, was the target and had been hit. However, eyewitnesses state that the bomber swooped so low the pilot must have known exactly what he was bombing. Now even though Warrington did take some bombs, Burtonwood was a target also because Spitfires were maintained there between 1940 and 1942. On the 6th of September 1940, Two Junker 88s dropped a series of incendiary bombs, and again later in the year. Luckily, there were no casualties at those points. As well as Glenn Miller, Vera Lynn came to Burtonwood to entertain the troops and boost morale. She was there a year before the war finished, on the 15th of August 1944. I think Vera Lynn's most famous song is this one, kindly sung here by James from the Beard Band. He popped up to my studio, came in and recorded this live all in the space of a couple of minutes. There'll be blue 
bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow. Just you wait and see. There'll be love and laughter and peace ever after tomorrow when the world is free. The shepherd will tend his sheep. And the valley will bloom again, and Jimmy will go to sleep in his own little room again. There'll be bluebirds over the white cliffs of Dover tomorrow. Just you wait and see. I started this podcast by suggesting most people would mention Burton Wood if asked about Warrington's wartime past. However, what also interests me, because of where I live, is the less well-known facility about four miles south of Warrington on the border of Stretton and Appleton Thorn. I'm referring to RNAS Stretton, or, as it's also known, HMS Blackcap. Although there's not much to see there now, apart from the old wartime-built runways. If you travel through Appleton Thorn Village, past the prison and over the motorway bridge, that eventually leads to Warley Hall. If you look east, you'll see these now deserted runways through the hedges and over some fields. Once more, I wanted to find out as much as I can about RNAS Stretton, so I could think of no one better than my old school friend Tom. He grew up in Appleton Thorn and has always had a fascination with this part of the UK's history. So on a baking hot day, I headed down to his house in Stockton Heath and sat drinking tea in his conservatory as he tried not to get too frustrated at how ignorant I am to most aspects of the war. We were joined for part of our conversation by a blackbird in his garden. Pity it wasn't a bluebird. RNAS. Royal Naval Air Station. It was a wartime-built station originally for the RAF and it was going to be a night fighter station because of the, because of the blitz on Liverpool and Manchester and they were going to base night fighters. But the Blitz finished, so the, the Royal Navy took it over. The well, RAF didn't need it anymore. Were they there before the war? No. The wartime built. The camp wasn't there. There was no camp there, was there? Not as far as I'm aware, no. It was built as an RAF station oh. with the intention of fight, uh, basing night fighters to protect Liverpool and Manchester, the northern cities, from air attack. Now, when the Blitz finished in 1941, it was then redundant, so it was still being built at that stage, so they didn't need the RAF didn't need it anymore. So it was transferred to the Royal Navy, and the Royal Navy took it over as a Royal Naval Air Station. Well, it was kept open. They didn't close it down in 41, did they? 
No, no, it was, but it was never used for what it was intended for. It was never used as an RAF base because the, the Blitz had finished and they didn't, the RAF didn't need it anymore. So they gave it to the Royal Navy, basically. So after 41, the Royal Navy took it over. And what was it, to train people? Training and maintenance and to house naval squadrons when they were not on board ships. For example, HMS Illustrious was in dock. Then the aircraft would have to fly off before it went into dock. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to get off the aircraft carrier because you have to steam at high speed in order to get the planes off the decks. So as soon as they were in dock, you couldn't get the aircraft on and off. So they had to fly them off the ships and they had to be based somewhere in the UK. In order for aircraft to take off wartime carriers, they had to do about 30 knots. So they turned into the wind where the wind was. Turned into it, I mean, they woke up to full speed. They weren't very big. So, you know, they had to get a lot of airspeed under the wings to get them airborne. Otherwise, they just bounced straight into the sea. So that's what the stations, and the one at Stretton was also a maintenance depot as well, the aircraft, training, maintenance. It just seems a bit, I know it's not very far, it's what, 20 miles, but it seems a bit far inland. Well, it was never designed as a naval, naval air station, that's why but they just took it on. Air bases were configured. Any, any air base, any airfield would be configured with three air runways. So the idea of that being, whichever way the wind's blowing, you could always get one runway where you get a headwind. But Royal Naval Air Stations never did that, they only used to have one runway and it would be configured like a like an aircraft carrier, and they would use it as practice. But the, the, because that had been designed as an RAF base, it wasn't like that. Ideally, aircraft, especially in those days, would have to take off to the headwind. It shortens the takeoff distance. You get more airspeed over the wing, and therefore more lift quicker. If you've got a heavily laden aircraft, a bomber, for example, and it's fully loaded, you know, you need a lot of lift to get off the ground. And they'd always have the the main runway would be would be built whichever way the prevailing wind was. But then they'd have two others. I can't even remember when it was shut down completely. Still in use as the 50s, because the main runway is still there. I don't, I don't even know who owns it, because there's someone, someone obviously it's owned by someone. It's no longer Ministry Land, because it was Ministry Land for a long time. I'm assuming it was Ministry Land during the war. It was up until the 60s, I believe. Because that's why, the, I mean, you know, the, you know, the old original open prison used the, the, the accommodation base for the air base, and it was all in Nissanots. And the prisoners were living in what were wartime temporary structures. What birds are out there, Charlie? Blackbird. I hope this podcast hasn't come across as being either for or against war. I'm still undecided. My admittedly facile history of Warrington's role in the war here has only made me want to find out more. At the very least, it's made me realise what my teenage self stupidly didn't realise. Old folk were young once, and in the case of many around Warrington, helped to create the freedom for me to quintessentially sit taking tea in a friend's conservatory, or watching a pretend war on a cricket pitch. Anyway, I'm going to finish up now by thanking my mate Tom, and also Mike Jackson and James Ball. James was setting up for a gig at Tom at 101 in Stockton Heath last Friday lunchtime and offered to nip up and record what turned out to be a haunting version of a song that epitomises peace in our time. I will finish now by listening to Mike Jackson's short story. So, until the next podcast, I'll talk to you later. Where's my Esther? Hello, what's this? Looks like this lovely policeman wants to talk to me. I wonder what I've done wrong. I do hope it's nothing too serious. I must say, she's very pretty, but so young. They always say, don't they, the moment you start to notice the policemen are looking younger, it's a sure sign you're getting older. Excuse me, sir, are you okay? What a strange question. 
course I'm okay. Why shouldn't I be? My gout's playing up a bit. Probably something to do with this weather we're having. But I'm sure she can't be referring to that. What would a young woman her age know about gout? I suppose she's just being polite. Not sure what I should say. Probably best if I just ignore her. Can you hear me, sir? I was asking, is everything all right? Are you waiting for someone? She's at it again. More strange questions. I wonder why she started talking so slowly in a raised voice. That's the trouble with these youngsters these days. Too quick to make assumptions. Just because I'm a bit older than her, she seems to think I'm stone deaf. Wait a minute. What's she doing now? Why has she got hold of my hand? Where's she taking me? Mind you, I'm not complaining. It's a long time since a pretty young girl held my hand. Apart from my lovely Esther, that is. Talking of Esther, it'd be just my luck for her to come along right now and catch us doing this. Why don't you sit down here, sir? I'm sure you'll be more comfortable and maybe we can have a little chat. Do you want to tell me your name? Oh, this is a turn up for the books. Sitting on a park bench, being chatted up by a pretty young woman. Mind you, she's been a bit forward. I suppose that's the modern age for you, though I'm not sure I approve. All these questions. Before we know what's happening, she'll be asking me where I live and then wanting to go to the pictures or something. I'm flattered, naturally, but I think I might be a little bit old for her. And then, of course, there's Esther. She can get very jealous, can my Esther? That reminds me. I wonder where she's got to. Look, sir, I can't help you if you don't speak to me. Are you supposed to be meeting someone? Now might be a good time to tell her about Esther. Let her know that I'm already spoken for. Better to say something now before things get out of hand. Let her down gently before she builds up her hopes too much. Goodness knows what Esther's going to say when she comes along. This could take some explaining. I wonder what's keeping her. I bet she's chatting up that butcher again, seeing if she can get some extra rations. Maybe she'll manage to get hold of some sausages. We've not had sausages for a long time. Bang as a mash. Now there's something to look forward to. Here you are, sir. Here's my colleague, and she's got a nice warm blanket to wrap round you. Two pretty policewomen. This is definitely turning out to be my lucky day. I'm not sure why they're wrapping that blanket round me, though. Mind you, it has gone a bit chilly. My fault. I should have listened to Esther when she told me to put my scarf on and those gloves. That's the thing with Esther. She's so sensible, always knows best. My trouble is I don't always listen to her. I must give some thought as to how I'm going to explain away two pretty ladies to her. Hello? Who's this young chap walking towards us? He looks a bit agitated. I do hope he's not one of the boyfriends. Come looking for trouble. Not that I'm worried. I can look after myself. Mind you, if Esther catches me fighting over two women, I'm really in trouble. Thank goodness you found him, officer. Is he OK? May we ask who you are, sir? Sorry, I'm his son. My wife and I have been out looking for him for ages. He slipped out of the house early this morning. It was some time before either of us noticed he was missing. You do know he's got no clothes on, don't you, sir? Yes, I know. He often does that. Simply forgets he's not got dressed. We keep telling him, but it never seems to quite sink in. I should have guessed he'd be here. It's where he and Mum used to do their courting, just after the war. Is she still alive, sir, your mum? No, she died almost five years ago. I'm glad in a way. I don't think she would have been able to cope with Dad like this. He forgets she's dead and keeps talking to her or asking where she is. Can I take him home now before he freezes to death? Of course, sir. Come on, Dad. 
let's get you home and dressed. Anne's got some lovely sausages in for your lunch. She's doing your favourite, bangers and mash, just like Mum used to. You like sausages, remember? Strange. That young man started talking to the two policewomen and now he's talking to me. He doesn't look so angry anymore. Maybe he's not a boyfriend looking for a fight. Though I don't know why on earth he's gone on about sausages. I hate sausages. Hang on. Did he just call me Dad? What a strange thing to say. I was only telling Esther the other day about the strange folk you meet in this park nowadays. Wait a minute. What is he up to now? He's got hold of my arm. What's he playing at? Where's he taking me? Constable, stop him. What's happening? Where's my Esther? Incidentally, Stretton beat Rylands 